0: Welcome to Mind of State, a podcast for both political junkies and armchair shrinks. I'm psychoanalyst and trauma therapist Betty Tang.
1: And I'm political communication strategist Jonathan Kopp. Join us as we welcome experts in politics and psychology to consider this the state of our nation through the state of our minds and the mind of our state. Hi, Betty.
0: Hi, Jonathan.
1: You know, when we were getting this season started, we were thinking about all the topics that we wanted to talk about. I remember climate change really popped to the top for us. I mean, from a political standpoint, I go way beyond the Green New Deal. I'm thinking about all of the policy and legislative and legal measures that we can use to try to shape human behavior so that that we can somehow pull back on the destruction that we're doing to our planet and, and to the human race.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in psychologically speaking, I think it's really interesting how these macro issues are really coming into uh, these individual conversations I'm having with people with regard to in the middle of the pandemic, these um, pictures of the Bay Area looking like midnight at midday, hurricanes hitting Louisiana, and just a feeling that the end is near, like that we've got, you know, these multiple monumental crises coming at us and it really can feel like it's Armageddon and how do we contend with that psychologically is is monumental it's monumental
1: so there we are we're looking at climate we think we've got a topic and then we hit something richer something deeper mm-hmm.
0: something connected connecting it all
1: right and the, the term for this is environmental racism that's where we landed And what we're talking about here is the connection between climate change and the impacts that it has on communities that are already being disproportionately affected by economic injustice and uh, and racial injustice. Environmentally compromised locally. And environmental compromise, for sure. And particularly when you think about how climate has come together with the pandemic, with the George Floyd protests. And the response to the Black Lives Matter movement, it feels like environmental racism is exactly right for this moment for Mind of State.
0: And... To talk to us about it is Dr. Adrienne Hollis, and we're really excited to have her on the show. She is the Senior Climate Justice and Health Scientist for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She's also taught at the George Washington University, Milken School of Public Health, and the American University Washington College of Law. So she's a bit of a triple threat scientist, lawyer, and public health advocate. Thank you so much for joining us, Adrian. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Tell us a little bit about your background and what drew you to, to the topic of climate to begin with.
2: Okay. Well, my background is um, in environmental health. I have um, a PhD in biochemistry, in nutritional biochemistry, and um, I started working as a toxicologist, looking at chemicals and how they affected the body. And then from that, I just started working with communities and looking at how certain populations were affected more than others, disproportionately so. And so my work is, um, for the past 20 plus years, has been on environmental justice. And climate change is a big part of that, because it, it, it all stems from what environmental justice is about, which is racism, mm-hmm. systemic racism. And so with climate change, you see a lot of issues around um people who were placed in situations because of their race. And those are the areas that are most affected by climate change first and worse.
0: And so Adrian, it sounds like you, you kind of found these things as you were doing toxicology and then you looked at the communities and, and were drawn in to respond. And so to a degree you followed your nose into this.
2: Well, uh, Betty, actually when I was, this is weird, but when I was young, I remember um, that's sort of like when it started. So I came full circle Mm-hmm. I remember going to a beach and there were certain beaches we could go to or we were welcome at as as um, black people. And um, our, my mom. Had, where, and where was that? In Mobile, Alabama, In Mobile, yeah. Alabama. <laughs> and my mom is Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Red State. And so my mom had uh, bought me a two piece because, you know, when you're a certain age, it's not a bikini. It's a two piece. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was white. And I remember getting in the water for no more than five minutes and it came out. It was black and it was wow. never white again and and then i just noticed some other things and those things kind of stuck with me like the mm-hmm. fact that a lot of people i knew had asthma when i was a kid including my brother and we weren't uh, we didn't have enough money to like get medication all the time mm-hmm. so my mom used to hold him over the bathtub and run the hot water to open up his um mm-hmm. airways and a lot of people did that back then mm-hmm. because that's all you had and so yeah my interest i I veered away for from it for for a while, and then came back to it. So it's always been, I guess, a part of me. I just didn't know what that would look like in the future. So first, I had yeah, so I had to go in and get my thing, and then come back and apply it. So <laughs> it it's so interesting
1: that you you've been acutely aware of these issues, focused on these issues for for decades now, and. Well, let's not uh, say
2: decades. Huh? Well, I
1: don't, since <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going ready. back to when you were a little kid, <laughs> okay, little kid,
2: okay. which wasn't that long ago,
1: <laughs> but through that time um, that, that you've been acutely aware of this, it seems like some sectors of the American public have been very slow to even come to the acknowledgement of climate, let alone the rest of it, to climate as a legitimate scientific issue that we need to deal with.
2: Yeah, I I think that was just denial, just like denial about the whole um, racism issue. You know, um, I think because of where I lived in the South, it may not have been as much denial, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. as it was in other places. Uh, But once things started to change, like uh, we used to at Christmas, we could wear shorts. And then as, you know, time passed, coats and boots, you know, and it would snow sometimes, occasionally like that. And those are the people would question that. So they had so there was some idea. People just didn't know enough about it to call it what it is, you know. So and, and then as far as the others, people just weren't ready to call it climate change. They figured it would go back to, you know, it, this is just this year. We're having a cold year, you know.
1: But it seems like even when the when the eyes started to open among the American public, the conversation that brought it to light, it maybe was about climate refugees, and and the place that that our minds went first was the equator, and and island populations, and and it was much later, I think, that the general public in the United States started to think about the impacts of climate change, direct impacts of climate change here in the U.S.
2: Mm-hmm. And well, I'm going to have to disagree with you. I'm not going to disagree Please with do. you. I'm going to say that what you're saying is true, but I think for people who are already dealing with um, environmental contamination, mm-hmm. that climate change just exacerbated that. So yes. it was always there. People didn't say climate change. It was like the weather is making this worse mm-hmm. yes, yes. or we're getting more of this. So I, I don't think that there was a time when uh, those who are most affected really dismissed it or, or ignored it, you know, but I do understand and and agree with what you're saying for the general population to don't have that you know other exposure that yeah they wouldn't you know really um pay attention to it like that or call it what it was so
0: and Adrian, when you were talking about the denial of structural racism and the denial of climate change, and now we're sitting in a pandemic, and there still is has been a denial of science or a resistance to science, and, and there's these um, intersections going on, and you talk about in your writings, and you bring forth the term syndemic we we got really excited with this term because it brings together a lot of things and we're all about intersections and what happens when 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 things come together with meaning and so so talk to us about how the how we're actually in a syndemic. Yeah, Betty, I was just about to bring that up. Because okay, after- <laughs> good. We
2: raised each other's mind. <laughs> that's okay, our wait, wait. word of
0: the. That's our word of the day.
2: That is my word of the year. <laughs> I take every, uh, every opportunity I can to say syndemic. <laughs> you know, I don't, it's a thing. It's but, good <laughs> because it applies to so many things. You know, climate change and mental health and and um to, you know physical health and you could do it l- that way, right? To look yep. at climate change and its effects. But the syndemic that I always referred to is the intersection of racism which underlies everything so structural racism climate change and in this instance um COVID 19 mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. you know it, because it's uh syndemic is two or more and and one of my friends and i were really trying to get to five i don't know why <laughs> like, oh my god, we got to find five things five things god i and, hope not <laughs> i know right i was like wait a minute why are we trying to get more but um but there are five aren't there I, I well, I I think the only thing we came up with four, which for some reason I'm I'm missing one: systemic racism, climate change, environmental contamination, right? Environmental exposures that's disproportionately affecting people of color and um, economic COVID-19, crisis. Yes economic dis- crisis and COVID. They, there is another. There you go. Sure. There you are. We could sit. We could go on. You know. Yeah. My yeah. I got to call her and tell her that's fine. We found the fun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, all those things people don't think of them, but everything's interrelated. I yeah. tell my students, um, I on at GW, I said, you know, you guys, everything's really interrelated. You give me one thing, and I can run down a connection between everything. And and um, they started doing it. I said, you just have to start asking questions and think about it. You know, people think asthma. Nope. Start thinking about asthma from here and here. And what does that mean for COVID? And what does that mean? You know, like in Lake Charles, right, when they had the hurricane, Hurricane Mm -hmm. Laura, then they had COVID. But then they had the biolab fire all at the same time on a hot day. Right. And they they were told to shelter in place. Don't open your windows and doors. Don't turn on your air conditioner. What? What does that do?
0: And what does that do?
2: When what are the long-lasting effects of that
0: further on down the line? Yeah, I mean Flint,
1: Flint, Michigan, right? Is that a lead problem?
0: Exactly.
2: Right. Or is that a little bit more? Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right.
0: Right. And, and and I think what you're talking about, which is so um, manifest in the pandemic right now, because we're all interdependent. If we wear a mask, we protect our other people from whatever we've got, and if we don't, we spread. Um, right. And we could be super spreaders. And I think that that is really something that people want to deal with or don't want to deal with um, the, the accountability and responsibility. Yep. And so with these interrelationships, because, I mean, I think we've been saying on the podcast to are blue in the face, we're in this perfect storm right now of these five things. And what you're saying is they're all connected. They're not right. happening siloed. And I think, Interestingly, we kind of think in siloed ways. It, maybe it's Western thought. I'm, I'm not, you know, sure of the roots of it, but it can be really useful to say, in fact, these are not separate. That they are caused by each other. So run us down for you because you're a climate change expert. You're you're an expert on environmental justice. You're also a lawyer. You also worked for the CDC. But we're, you know, like you've got a lot. We've got a lot to say to you or ask you. But where do you start? I mean, it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. But where does it begin for you? Well,
2: well, first, let me say I did I did not work at CDC. Okay, right, I right. I worked the at sister. the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, which is the sister agency to CDC. Not that there's any competition. <laughs> okay. um, so, you know, uh, that's a good question. And where it starts for me is with people, right? So I look at what affects people mm-hmm. and all of these different things affect them, right? And so that's where I began because... I don't know if that's the public health part of me, or you know, when I finished law school, everything was that's a lawsuit. You need to, you know, (laughs) oh, that's a a lawsuit. You know, but now and before that, and it's always the question is always, how does this affect the average person? Because and I always say that communities really, and well, the public really has three questions, right? I do. Uh, What is it? How does it affect me? And what can I do about it? Mm -hmm. And all of those situations apply there, right? So we talk about COVID. When you have somebody who's already economically um, oppressed, right? Then how is that going to affect them, right? My brother is a, an essential worker, and when he when his um, restaurant closed, they you know they weren't given any money. And I, I called um, about his rent and I said, well, you know what what are you guys doing? What break are you giving them? Well, if they pay early, they get fifty dollars off. And I said, well, fifty from zero is, you know, zero. And I said... And
0: paying early from zero
2: is impossible. Right, if you're not working. So, uh, and this is just indicative of the fact that we weren't ready. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're built to, I mean, complex problems, interrelated problems, intersectional problems take uh, a tremendous amount of, I mean, as you know, tremendous amount of work and energy and coordination, collaboration to break down. Are Mm -hmm. we built the right way? Are we structured the right way to combat intersectional problems like this?
2: And, and that's what I meant, Jonathan, when I just said we, we weren't ready. Yeah. We could be structured that way. Yes. If we learned lessons from the past, from Hurricane Katrina and mm-hmm. everything that happened since, w- yeah, we could be ready. And if we learn from this, right, from this, as um, Betty said, this perfect storm, we can be ready because Who's to say that this is never gonna happen again? Oh it I will. Right. Exactly. So right. let's let's never let this happen again where we're caught unawares, right? So I think we have what it takes to be to have to, to have everything in place, to be structured. We just haven't done it. And it, it does take time. So when you're talking about
0: Hurricane Katrina, we didn't learn those lessons. And then um, I was thinking about Hurricane Harvey and the Houston response to Hurricane Harvey, which did bring together a consortium of different agencies and, and co- a coalition of competing agencies and, and interests. Because it was a concrete hurricane, like uh, people were flooded People had to come together from both sides of the aisle and go get neighbors that were stranded in buildings or even animals, and and deal with uh, areas. Every got everybody got flooded in Houston. Now, a pandemic, and particularly something like COVID, is weirdly abstract, even though it's concrete, meaning where or people are getting hurt. And, and sickened, and we're losing people. And yet it's different from 80-mile-an-hour winds or buildings falling down. And and I wonder what you think of that, Adrienne, in terms of how we might come together or how
2: we might be forced to learn, or if we will be. Yeah, I think it's different, but I think it's it's scarier but mm-hmm. because it touches, you know, it's stealthy sort of. But mm-hmm. I also... I, I don't think that there are very many people left who have not been touched by COVID-19, right? Mm -hmm. In some way, have lost Mm -hmm. family members or have had family members who were sick. And I think that the lesson, if that was your question, is that we first need to think broadly, right? Because we did say that it was connected. So I think once we start addressing the existing issues before covid in the before time, as I like to call it, if Mm -hmm. we address the structural racism and the effects of climate change and economic injustices and things of that nature, then I think that'll prepare us a little bit better for COVID, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. if people make enough money to have food, Mm -hmm. then they don't have to stand in line because they just were living, you know, check to check. Right, right, right. 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 If you're the, the
1: people who are most marginal... Uh, what, what do they say when it when it rains in America, it pours. Uh, right. And and I think I, I think it's absolutely true. If you're vulnerable, uh, when something strikes, um, you're going to be it's worse. You're going to be the first one hit. And what I, I, you know, the, the preparation point, though, is a really interesting one, because in hindsight, we know that the Obama administration had a pandemic preparedness playbook. Right. They wanted to hand it off to the Trump administration, but I wonder, as sophisticated and empathic as the Obama administration was, do you think that that playbook addressed all of the intersectional issues, or was it mostly focused on dealing with a virus and a vaccine?
2: And see, I have no idea. I haven't seen it, but I would hope that it was... um because of the interconnectedness. But I'm under something else you said. I'm I'm so glad you said it. I want to step back and and mm-hmm. you, I don't know. You said um communities who are vulnerable or vulnerable communities. So I that term for me, I it's not my favorite. Oh. because I feel like the communities aren't vulnerable. We've put them in situations in the vulnerable situation, mm-hmm. right? Oh these for are, sure. Yeah for, for sure. And, and just wording. Because these people, you know, people bounce back, right? And mm-hmm. and even, you know, when you, we, we like after Hurricane Katrina, remember people were lost and they couldn't find family members and yes. people were put on buses and mm-hmm. crazy, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. E- eventually, and maybe there are still some people who are lost to us. You know, we don't know what happened, but for the, but people bounced back. They didn't go back like to the ninth ward, lower ninth ward. Everybody couldn't go back, but they were resilient in, in spirit, right? And yeah. in the ability mm-hmm. to fight. But the situation where they were located. Yeah.
1: Listen, I mean, I I, I think I think vulnerable doesn't mean of of their own volition or that they're just sitting and waiting to be hit. Mm -mm, But mm -hmm. but but I think there are communities that have been victimized, um, that have been cut out, that have been overlooked, uh, that have been not listened to. And yeah. and that's 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 all I meant was
2: yeah I didn't mean you I just wanted you that opportunity was so perfect that <laughs> because I know you didn't mean it that way but I was like oh I got to say this you know because no
1: I appreciate I just, that
2: yeah because you know um, a lot of communities point that out well and I also appreciate that.
0: Because you point to the, the prospect of healing. It's not it's not identified as, as inherent to the community. It's the situation. And then we all have a hand in the situation and we can change it. And then the, the people who live there can heal from that. And And I wonder if, um, you know, talking about Hurricane Katrina, what do you think we did do right? In emerging from there, or, or good things that happened, and and of course things that we we still could stand to to
2: relearn, or that we have to kind of go back around the horn there. Wow! So this is definitely my opinion. I think that what we did right was what happened afterwards when people came together to mm-hmm. help and clean up and rebuild. You know, I went down there because I have, uh, you know, I'm from Mobile. So that's two two hours away, two and a half hours away. So I knew people there and just talking to them and listening and helping. And I mean, what else? Think about it. The the trailers that were provided, some were contaminated. Um, everybody couldn't use them. Um, people didn't get uh, financial assistance that they needed. Everybody didn't get it. So what really stands out for me is the way that the citizenry responded, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, the way we all came together, so, and that is something that you see, that we've seen some of in COVID-19, some of that same behavior, which I, you know, which people are so, so grateful for, right, so, yeah, you know, I, I, um, what could have been different was, um, I I don't know. You know, that was the first lesson. And like when people uh, were told to evacuate and they went to the Superdome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, was there a way people would have could have known that it was going to actually not be the safest place? I don't know. Right. You know, but I think that when things are built in the future, they need to be built with the possibility of what if in mind, you know, so it's better to be safe. Right and we need to i i think if we had if there was a way to do more adaptation you know instead of mitigation not instead of in addition to mitigation then we wouldn't have i think we'd be in a better in a better place a better situation so what do you think are the
0: barriers to adaptation versus mitigation
2: well i'm not an expert here either but i do know that financial considerations are Really important, because adaptation in the in the in the immediate run is more expensive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but in my opinion, in the long run, it pays for itself right right, right. Yeah. so it's it's taking a longer view in the investment right. of it um
0: right. this is something that always is on my mind with with activists and people who are like yourself, who really enter into something that is at times really frustrating and disappointing to see people not do the right thing or that it's going to take a long, long haul. It's the long slog to see improvements happening. And then a disaster comes and the same lessons are learned, or it it can feel almost like you're rolling a ball up a hill and and getting crushed again. How do you keep it going? Like what sustains you in this work?
2: Wow, that's a that's a good question. Or um, that's a good topic. If you were on on Fridays, I used to have um, until it became too busy, a group of my friends who uh, women have would get together, I had a got a zoom line and everything. And we just get together online and talk on Saturdays. And all of us were kind of in the environmental field, but different levels, like mm-hmm. somebody's secretary, somebody's just starting out, you'd have a dean, you know, just diff- different groups of people and talk about just Not only how messed up the week was, but just about um, issues in general. Like Mm -hmm. we would literally save the world and, you know, solve all (laughs) the problems. And then, you know, we wouldn't remember because it'd be a happy hour, but, you know, we would save save all the problems. And and that really sustains you, that and and then at work um, in my particular program area, we would set aside some time, particularly after as COVID, you know, with COVID to just talk about nothing and not Mm -hmm. nothing that's work related, just take that time out. And then it's just, Calling people that I know who are working in this area and 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 helping each other, like lifting each other up, and that's the only way that works is to have other people support you. Even if I, you don't want to burden your family all the time about you know you know because they're going to worry that you're depressed and you know, <laughs> you know. Whereas the people who work with you are like, oh, okay, I know today was a bad day, right? I'm like, yeah, it sucked. But, <laughs> This is what happened. I was beating my head up against the wall. And I'll do that. I'll tweet. I, like I just tweeted last week. I said, sometimes I feel like I'm deliberately knocking my head up against a brick wall. Well,
0: that's what it can even look like, you know, from the outside, because this thing is so big, you know, yeah. and it's so multi-tentacled. But what you're saying echoes what we do in trauma work, because um, I work with sexual assault survivors, and we get long weeks, too. But it sounds like you debrief. And so you kind yeah. of go with the folks who are in your field and wherever they're coming from and you, you have an exchange like an a mutual recognition of what you're going through. So right, like a bitch session. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. Can you right, say right. that on the radio? I don't yes, know. Yes, you can. Hey, uh, on this podcast. one, you, you can. can you <laughs> but then, you know, what's just as important, I have a, a group of friends from, from law school mm-hmm. who don't do anything that I, any of the stuff that I do and I get to talk to them about it. And they ask all the, you know, they listen because this is something new to them. And I listen to them. They listen to me. So sometimes it's having that fresh perspective, too. So I think mm-hmm. it's just being able to talk to people who you don't work with every day, um, all the time. Like I said, sometimes that's what you need, too. But it's being able to de- to debrief. And it's hard when you're in COVID. It's hard, right? Because stepping away is hard, like today, my day doesn't end until for a couple more hours, so it's hard to right. make that dis- distinction between work and work and home sometimes. And we're because- so
1: isolated, right? I mean, yeah. we're we're in our Zoom boxes and and all the rest. I I want to I want to take you back a few months and speak about a, a moment where we we came out of our Zoom boxes, and that was around the George Floyd murder. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, anyway, it was a moment. Where the intersectional aspect of the syndemic of these multiple crises um, really seem to uh, come together into stark relief for for the American public, for the world. And I wonder if you could comment a little bit, given the focus of your work on environmental justice, environmental racism, about how COVID and George Floyd in that moment um, affected you.
2: Yeah, that. Yeah. You know, uh, my first my initial feeling was just utter sadness because it took that for people to wake up. I mean, how sad. Mm. Yes. And how many people died before that. Right. Yeah. And um, then it became a realization that people were finally listening you know, I mean, the environmental justice community, people have been doing this way longer than me, and they've been talking and talking, and I'm sure sometimes feeling like most of the time, feeling like they, nobody was listening. And then um, somebody asked me right after uh, Mr. Floyd was, was murdered, is it too soon to talk about environmental justice and what happened? And I was like, absolutely not. How mm-hmm. can you not talk mm-hmm. about, that's just like... I make the connection with public health. You can't talk about public health without talking about climate change, without talking about races. You know what I'm saying? Everything is connected. And so it's never too soon, Mm -hmm. you know, but it, 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 I think it can be a little too late. And I think the fact that so many people have passed makes it late, but now that people are listening, you know, it's not too late, but I think it's, it's, it's harder. And, and the COVID, I think, um, kind of opened people's eyes to a lot of things. I I don't know why, like what it is about COVID in particular, that made people stand up and notice that, hey, people are being murdered, or hey, there's a lot of police brutality, and people have been saying this, or hey, a lot of prisons don't have air conditioning, and people are living in inhumane conditions, and a lot of homeless people don't have, you know, access to the to water, when those are messages we I know I've been giving and I know people before me have and and but now I know I noticed that like communities that I work with made a deliberate effort to provide running water to homeless populations mm-hmm. not only because of climate change but also because this is the one thing you can do wash your hands and do these things at least we can do that the least of which we can do is provide water for you because you know, in the middle of this climate, this heat, extreme heat issue, your shelter is probably going to close during the day. If you're around people who may be um, 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 asymptomatic COVID carriers, or you want to call it, um, you know, at, at least you can do that. And so, mm-hmm. I, I think people just started thinking. I don't know if it was because they were home all the time and, and had more time to listen and, or because it was just, people were just fed up. I think it was also social media, right? People saw it. Mm-hmm. It isn't the first time people have seen something like this, but it's, I mean, the man had his knee on his neck and, yeah. and, and, and there's nothing like that, you know, and, and then putting it, I think, putting it on social media for, for most people, particularly people of color was just reliving it and, and making it worse, you know, but, it comes to a point. I'm sure we all have our points where enough is enough. I mean, I'm sure you can tell tell us uh, incidences where, whatever the situation was, enough is enough. Right and, right. and people just reach that breaking point at the same time because of the just the incredible. I think that, in addition to just the way things have been these last few years, it was mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. The it's final a pressure straw. cooker. Right.
1: Maybe it's because it's winter, maybe it's because of exhaustion. Uh but the marches are not happening now. Well some are. Right. There are some marches, but, <laughs> but certainly and, and there will be again. But are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling like we gotta keep the pressure on? Where where's your head in terms of the the, the response?
2: yeah um when I said some marches are, you know of course you have the Trump supporters who are saying that the- r- voting was rigged yes. and all of that, right, so they're marching, and my I'm always hoping that there are no people of color out there you know doing the counter march or whatever that you know uh, um I feel like we are keeping the pressure on. You know, there are a lot of people out there working from the election on, you know, even before that with voter suppression and all that sort of thing. And people haven't stopped. You know, we're mm-hmm. looking at the as um, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris began to form their um, team. Yes. Mm-hmm. People are looking and not only looking, but commenting, not only commenting, but writing letters. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and protesting in in social media. And by social media, I mean more than just Twitter or whatever I'm talking about, writing letters to the to the press or, to you know, the New York Times or whoever. So I think people are definitely still putting on the, the pressure. And I don't think that's going to stop.
1: So on the on the climate side, it seems like the, the Biden-Harris administration is taking some dramatic steps, right? Uh, John Kerry's climates are. Yeah. Deb Holland as Interior Secretary, Gina McCarthy yes. as Domestic Climate. I mean, what's your response to these announcements, and what does it say about the future?
0: And and to piggyback off of that, you said in another interview that we have to be our own cavalry. The cavalry and isn't coming. The yeah. cavalry isn't coming. Now, is this the cavalry coming, or is this like you know something else?
2: Or are you optimistic? I think that this is part of the cavalry, mm-hmm. right? I think that the people who are um, providing input is another part of the Calvary. And I think that we have to wait and see how all this plays out. I don't think it's, this isn't the end. This is the beginning. Mm -hmm. And um, it is exciting on so many levels, you know, from just from a diversity, inclusion, um, racial issue, um, beginning to address the unfair Activities that have occurred these last four years of hell. Uh, can mm. I say that on the yes, yes, you can. Absolutely. I'll say it <laughs> again. Because that's what it was.
0: we <laughs> like we're
2: waking up from a nightmare, okay? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, when when uh, Deb Holland was uh, named, so excited. You know, such a blessing on so many different ways because he, now you have people who not only get it, who live it, right? Mm-hmm. Who understand it. And and that's what it's really about. You're you going to get the best protections and 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 uh, come up with the best partnered um, results by having people in there who really have buy-in, mm-hmm. who you know in some way they have lived experiences, whatever that looks like, right? As opposed to somebody who's been uh, totally removed from this and could really care less, or who has um, outside interests that don't really uh, relate, like. They may have profit over people. Let me just say it like that. So I'm hopeful.
0: So, so when you were saying, like, sometimes it can feel like you're screaming and no one's listening. Here, you've got people who are not going to silence this, who are gonna, who who have proven to be listeners and who have the ears to hear this. Do you feel like they they like you? See, syndemics that these are intersections.
2: I think they do. If you look at the um, the transition page. He lists these things, right? How amazing. I was like, was he in my mind or what? (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I think that they do because they are interconnected. There's no way that you can't. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's living it. Mm -hmm. You can't, you know, you cannot unmake it because when people talk about, as I said, economic issues and what they've seen with uh, the pandemic and how the stimulus packages are so important, but ridiculously small, right? And people are saying this is ridiculously small, but you hear about people who would rather not go back to work because they're making more on unemployment than they did at work. Mm. How mm-hmm. crazy is that? Right? I don't blame them. I wouldn't go back. Either. But then on the other hand, you have this new, right, this new uh, um, rule or whatever it is that allows um, employers to report people who won't come back to work. You know, it's crazy. Like, how about just hire somebody else or whatever? Or or if you give people what they need, then we can shut down for a while and we could get over this like other places have, other countries have. But right now people have no choice. They need to work. You know, that's the situation that they've been put in for whatever reason. I'm going to say racism, but you know, (laughs) that's not always the case. It can be, you know, sometimes it's, it's as simple as rich people, poor people, right? and there's no consideration for poor people if you're very rich you're like i'm just, hey i'm just trying to get mine i'm not thinking about them like it's sort of like Mary internet right let them yeah, eat yeah. cake right mhm mhm and what you point to is the the class
0: aspect of this yes. which is a factor in the in the inequities that this points up the the haves and the have-nots and the splits the huge yeah. splits there're some people doing better in the pandemic than than worse because they're right? in <laughs> corporate environments which is stunning and, and upsetting and you you've referred back to the economic aspects and the the negligence of, of economic need and it seems like there's not an assessment of need and we you know we do needs assessment in social work and that these um, stimulus packages seem to sort of still a little bit miss what is needed and what is hurt which requires care. And it always throws me back to the politics of care, which we talked to a previous guest, Diva Woodley, who's a political scientist on grassroots movements, and she focuses on Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter is, is focused on the politics of care, which focuses well being as the center of politics rather than economics. And so I wonder if you can. Maybe see us shifting or negotiating a shift, like um, of of us being focused on S and P numbers and stock market uh, rising ra- as measures of our health, rather than you know really looking at whether people are suffering or not as measures of our health and well being.
2: I think that you'd have to do them together. You, could, I don't think it's the one or the other sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there are going to be those who are more concerned about um, profits. And and we saw that even when people were buying up all of the paper towels and the toilet paper, right? And then selling it at 700% interest.
0: (laughs) Right, and the hand sanitizer.
2: (laughs) Right, it's like, what the hell, you know? But so I think that we need to, you have to do both. And then I think that should be part of what what I've um, come to learn is um, needed an environmental uh, needs assessment. You talked about needs assessment. Mm-hmm. Well, this one talks about all of those different aspects of it. And initially, it was more—it was more about uh, exposures and and where you were living and and cumulative exposures. And now we have to add to that these other inequities. Like what makes you more at risk, you know, and the whole, like, for example, the relationship between COVID and asthma or particulate mm-hmm. matter and things mm-hmm. like that, right? So mm-hmm. let's do some calculations on um, how much is it going to cost to develop a, a system just with cleaner scrubbers, like whatever you're releasing is not, you know, not at the level that's going to cause um, so many um, health effects because you're not going to move communities. We We already see that that's not going to happen. It should happen in some instances, but.
1: Adrian, do you think the Green New Deal fit the way it's written, the way it's structured? Does it start from an intersectional place, or is it too siloed? Does it does it consider the needs, as you described, the needs assessment?
2: Okay, so I don't know much about the Green New Deal except maybe the framework, and I'm going to say I don't think it's siloed. In my opinion, I think it's it's the beginning of intersectionality. Good. And then, it, and I don't know what it's what it going to be but i know that it's going to be something that incorporates a lot of different uh, areas and entities and interests
1: it would seem so i mean right yeah. Put it if you can create the incentive uh through profit motive not only uh about concern for the climate and concern for people but also profits and also jobs and everything else take an intersectional approach
2: Yeah, I mean, we already know that just focusing on profit doesn't work, right? We've just had four years of that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And at the, you know, to the detriment of people. So, uh, of course, we haven't, to my knowledge, I mean, as long as I've been alive, which, as we all know, hasn't been that long. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't focused just on people before. So mm-hmm. And because it doesn't make sense, because, you know, I just talked about economy and all those kind of things. So it seems that the best approach would be to incorporate everything. And that's sort of like when you talk about bringing all the stakeholders to the table, your economist, your engineer, your community member, your small business owner, a farm worker, farm owner, everybody, because everybody has a stake in making this a success, right? And I don't know if people don't know how to do that, but I think that we're willing to do it. I don't know how to do it, but I know I'm open to it and I know it's necessary, so.
0: And so in terms of this human-centered approach, Adrian, you know, in terms of environmental justice and, and all of the, and this endemic, um, in the syndemic, in how we crawl out of it or how we address it in the future or future syndemics, what would be like your top three steps? Wow. Um, the the Top three things that I would do, or that this president would do, that you would do. I, I want, I want the world according
2: to Adrian. Oh well, then in that case, the first thing I would do is establish trust and credibility. You know, and that includes um, having a trusted source for information. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. can, everybody can go to and know that this source is, is the truth, and transparency is good, and everything's good. And, and then I think if people trust you or are beginning to trust you, that you're going to get people uh, participating and interacting with you on a, on a more in-depth level. And you won't get so much, you won't, you won't get so many people siloed. So that would be the first thing. And then the, the very next thing is to address this, uh, the economic aspects, um, the things that we've seen with COVID-19 that we know extend far beyond that. Because we've got to get people some, you know, get them some money. Mm-hmm. And get them some money so that we can then, by doing that, address the third thing, which is COVID-19, right? Because people can stay home. And for those who don't want to wear their mask, I think we might need a little federal action or start, you know, fining people. Because what you're doing, no, no, nobody cares if you're, you know, it's not about you. It's about the people you talk to or you're exposed to. You know, I have a neighbor who doesn't wear a mask. And when I see him every day, I'm like, you're welcome. And he just started laughing. I say, like, you're welcome because I'm wearing this for you. Mm-hmm. And then I'll like, say, but you obviously don't give a damn about me but, you know, mm-hmm. because you're not wearing one. And and that's what it is. So, you know, I'd, I'd um, talk to um, the people at the state and local level and health departments and see what we need to do in that regard to get people to wear their masks. People in other countries do it. And it works. And I don't know what people need to be convinced. But yeah, I think in the, you know if we do those three things, we're well on our way. We have a long way to go. A lot of things to fix because a lot of things are broken. I so.
1: think you've laid out a, a, a fabulous <laughs> recipe, the, the, the building blocks for a successful future. And uh, we appreciate you coming to spend time with us on Mind of State. We look forward to continuing the conversation.
2: Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for
0: joining us on this episode of Mind of State. If you like this episode, you'll find plenty more on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts.
1: You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mind of State Pod. Our website is mindofstate.com.
0: Mind of State is produced by Alita Cooper and Jenny Woodward. Special thanks to our co-founder, Thomas Singer. I'm Betty Tang.
1: And I'm Jonathan Kopp. Join us next time on Mind of State.